Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on April 29th, 2021, in the Crescent City, New Orleans, Louisiana. This episode is the third to explore Hernando de Soto's invasion of the American Southeast from 1539 to 1542. Our goal, as always, is to make history fun and interesting, even when it's also brutal and ugly, which it's about to get. Thank you again for listening and telling your friends about the History of the Americans podcast. We hope we're telling good stories here, and good stories are meant to be shared. You're doing a great job so far, and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast by one means or another so you don't miss an episode, please consider doing Last week, we looked at Soto's upbringing, the forces that shaped him, a brief history of his conquests in Central and South America, and the painful yet ironic story of Juan Ortiz, rescued by Soto after living 11 years in the captivity of his Central Florida Indian tribe. The expedition had landed at Tampa Bay at the end of May 1539 and camped there for six weeks hoping to capture some Indians who would lead them toward an advanced Indian civilization with a lot of gold, maize, or both. Gold was important because, well, it was cash money. Maize was important because maize meant large settlements with agricultural surpluses. Large settlements were important because they were a thing that could be conquered, unlike the mobile bands of hunter-gatherers who predominated on the peninsula of Florida. Agricultural surpluses were important because Soto had horses and 600 men who needed to eat. Soto's army traveled on its stomach, but didn't have any meals ready to eat. Now that Soto had his translator in Ortiz, he organized his army into units designed for different purposes and began marching to the north. Generalizing a bit, at each point Indian chiefs would suggest that there were great cities with lots of food and gold ever further to the north. And in this way, the expedition spent the balance of 1539 moving north through the center of the Florida Peninsula. The first disappointment came at an Indian territory known as Acala, which, not surprisingly, is near modern-day Ocala. There the chief met Soto with an angry and passionate speech, condemning the Spanish and their savagery. The Inca, one of the four Soto chroniclers discussed in our first Soto episode, claims that this chief, quote, already had much information from other Castilians who had come to that country years before as to who they were, and he knew very well about their lives and customs, which consist in occupying themselves like vagabonds and going from one land to another, living from robbing, pillaging, and murdering those who had not offended them in any way. He by no means desired friendship or peace with such people, but rather mortal and perpetual warfare. Even though they might be as brave as they boasted of being, he had no fear of them, because he and his vassals considered themselves no less valiant, as proof of which he promised to wage war against them during all the time that they might see fit to remain in his province. Not in the open nor in pitched battle, although he could do so, but by waylaying and ambushes, taking them off guard. Recall that Garcilaza the Inca is the only one of the Soto chroniclers who is not along on the expedition, relying entirely on interviews of the survivors after the fact. 
So maybe it ain't so. Or maybe it is. Soto was still on roughly the same path Narvaez had followed 11 years before. So the Akali chief probably did know about the Spanish. Also, recent archaeology has unearthed a mass grave in the area, dated to the 16th century, including bones with deep cuts that had to have been made by steel weapons, all of which suggests that the Alcala chief made good on his threat. The balance of 1539 looked pretty much like this. Soto would single-mindedly follow rumors of golden maize, roughly on the route the Narvaez expedition 11 years before, and encounter Indians who, with more than enough reason, did not trust the Spanish and would fight them. The difference was that Soto's expedition was far more prepared, better supplied, and had many more horses. It was much more competent militarily, so the Indians would inevitably lose, even if they inflicted some casualties. Many would end up dead, both from fighting and we now believe Eastern Hemisphere diseases that ripped through the local populations, as the Spanish, who manifestly did not wear masks or practice social distancing, passed through. Some number of the survivors would end up as slaves, schlepping Spanish baggage over long distances. The Spanish did find maize, but would never find gold. By the fall of 1539, the army had reached northern Florida and was looking for a settlement with enough food to support it through the winter. The Timucuan, desperate to see the back of the Spanish, had pointed them in the direction of Appalachia, a so-called Mississippian culture that occupied the area around modern Tallahassee. We last encountered the Appalachian when we went along with an Arvice expedition in Cabeza de Vaca a few episodes back. The Indians of Appalachia were agricultural, had large settled populations, and a substantial military capacity that had harassed the Narvaez people to the point of desperation. As the expedition approached Appalachian territory, the Timucuan captives became ever more agitated and pleaded with the Spanish to turn back. Let's spend a little time on the Appalachian. Not only were they a relatively sophisticated Indian culture in that part of the continent, but it's from them that we get the name for the ancient mountain chain that runs the length of the American eastern seaboard. Rather than tediously rewriting perfectly good descriptions of the Appalachian, I'm going to read liberally from David Ewing Duncan's biography of Soto, Hernando de Soto, A Savage Quest in the Americas, which I again recommend if you want to go deeper. The proud Indian Soto is about to confront were the first true Mississippians along the Spaniards' route, that is, the first highly organized kingdom with a strong central authority, standing army, elite classes of politicians, priests, and warriors, and a complex network of trade with other Mississippian kingdoms as far north as the Great Lakes, and perhaps as far south as Tenochtitlan in Mexico. Details about the Appalachian are sketchy in the Chronicles, the modern archaeology has recently augmented the written word with numerous illuminating, if frustratingly incomplete, discoveries. What we know for sure is that when Soto came through, the Appalachian king ruled a prosperous kingdom that worshipped the sun, grew an abundance of food, and built large kingdoms filled with pyramids, temples, and large round lodge houses. We also know that this kingdom was only some 40 miles square, centered in modern Leon County, Florida 
one of the most fertile counties in Florida, where underground cisterns of fresh water still rise regularly from limestone sinkholes to replenish a thick crust of alluvial soil. In 1539, the country was fertile enough to feed some 25,000 Appalachian and possibly as many as 100,000. It was also rich in game, fish, and shellfish, which the Appalachian ate with great relish, given the great heaps of animal remains they discarded in garbage pits dug up over the years by archaeologists. They also used furs and bones of fish and animals to fashion elaborate clothing and jewelry. Everything from feather capes and martin skin shawls to painted bone earrings and decorated breastplates from the seashells. Garcilaso tells us the Appalachian were as well known among other Mississippian kingdoms for the jewelry they fashioned from shells, which they collected on the coast, as they were for their fighting ability. Apparently, the Appalachian operated a booming business in trading conchs, fantail shells, coral, whelks, and jewelry to inland kingdoms, bartering for everything from crockery to copper. The Appalachian also played sports, for which we have a fairly detailed description. Duncan again. The only written description we have about Appalachian culture was penned by a priest named Juan de Peva in the 1670s, who recorded in detail the Appalachian's most popular game. He did not do this out of historical curiosity, however, but to convince the colonial authorities in St. Augustine that this game was a pagan rite that should be banned. Called simply the ball game, it was played by two teams, usually rival clans or villages who tried to score goals by kicking and slapping a small, hard buckskin ball toward a goalpost topped by a stuffed eagle in the middle of a playing field. Hitting the post scored one point. Hitting the eagle scored two. Played exclusively in the summer, the game involved elaborate ceremonies to set up the goalpost, paint the contestants in their clan colors, and to perform rituals such as fast chanting, dream interpretation, charms, and counter-charms. According to Father Paeva, the game could be extremely violent. It started with what sounds like a scrum in a rugby game going after a ball, but quickly devolved into a free-for-all. The players fell upon one another at full tilt, writes Paiva, aiming kicks without concern whether it is to the face or the body, while at other places, still others pull at arms and legs with no concern as to whether they may be dislocated or not, while still others have their mouths filled with dirt. After the melee was finished, as this pileup begins to become entangled, it was common to find four or five players stretched out unconscious. Over them, others are gasping for breath. And over there lie others with an arm or leg broken. Paeva says the violence spilled over into the audience, with virtually every game he witnessed erupting in a live war. In some cases, Indians died of their injuries. How can these wretches stay alive thus, Paeva asks. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Appalachians would have violently agreed with that sentiment. In any case, by 1682, the government in St. Augustine had officially prescribed the game, something the Appalachians might have greeted with the same horror and sadness as modern Americans being told that baseball or football had been banned. 
Many Indians in Florida continued to play it clandestinely. As those of us who grew up with lawn darts and BB guns know well, safety and fun are not always perfectly aligned. Back in 1539, the Appalachee were as ready for Soto as any Indians could have been. Having confronted Narvaez, they had seen Spanish cavalry in action, and having heard about Soto's march, they had time to prepare defenses specifically designed to neutralize the horse. They picked swampy places and dense woods to confront the Spanish, and built rope and cane fences across narrow paths and stream beds to entangle the horses. Their defense was in depth, so as one point became untenable, the Appalachian warriors could fall back to another prepared position. Finally, they evacuated their towns and burned what they couldn't bring with them. After bloody fighting, the Spanish were nominally victorious in the sense that on October 6, 1539, Soto's army reached the settlement of Anhaika in today's Tallahassee, roughly the center of Appalachian territory. In Duncan's words, we have now reached the only place in the Entrada's entire 4,000-mile route where there's incontestable proof Hernando de Soto was there. This is Anhaika, and its location is in downtown Tallahassee, about a half mile from the Florida State Capitol building, specifically in the front yard of a mansion that once belonged to Florida State Governor John Martin. That archaeological discovery is its own cool story, and also much to involve for this podcast. Suffice it to say that the Appalachian, Soto, and Governor Martin all knew an attractive piece of land when they saw it. Soto's army was to spend five months in Greater Tallahassee attempting to pacify the Appalachian. He failed. They did abandon their villages and much of their food, but they continued to launch raids against the Spanish. We do not know much about what transpired in these months, the winter of 1539 and 40, except that Soto sent reconnaissance missions north and south. To the north, his scouts found no gold, but many populated villages and prosperous settlements, deepening Soto's belief that a great civilization sat somewhere in that direction. To the south, he sent Juan Añasco, who found the Bay of Horses, Duncan again summarizing Elvis. They didn't go far, however, before stumbling on a horrific sight, an overgrown clearing where they found scattered about skulls of horses, mortars to grind corn, and a large tree which had been cut down and made into troughs fixed with some posts. This was, of course, the camp of Panfilo de Narvaez, where dozens of Spaniards in 1528 had perished from disease, starvation, and the shellacking they received from the Appalachian, where the survivors had built their shoddy rafts and tried to escape La Florida. Attentive and devoted listeners will note that Duncan's summary differs from my own account of the Bay of Horses back during our four-part series on Cabeza de Vaca. The sources I had read did not believe that very many Spanish died during the raft-building phase, that they departed the Bay of Horses with almost the same 250 people who had arrived there, with most of the Spanish casualties having come earlier in the slog through Florida. This seems like a small and barely relevant detail, however. The important point is that this is an example of third-party confirmation of Cabeza de Vaca's narrative. For the balance of 1540, Soto's army followed much of the route I described in the last episode, 
or one of the competing versions of it, ranging up through Georgia into the Carolinas, then west by northwest to the Knoxville area, then southwest through northwest Georgia and Alabama, where things would turn very ugly. At each point, Soto followed rumors of gold and wealth, and at no point that anybody can detect did he consider actually establishing a permanent settlement. As promised, we will hit only some of the highlights that are most interesting to me. On May 1st, 1540, in eastern South Carolina, Soto first encountered the queen of Kofetacheki, a high Mississippian society that seemed much wealthier than even the Appalachee. She gave him blankets and clothing made of buffalo hide and a strand of pearls, which were, one of the chroniclers perhaps exaggerating a tad, the size of hazelnuts. The queen of Kofetacheki, we now believe, was so friendly to Soto out of weakness. Her great kingdom had, Soto soon discovered, very recently suffered a catastrophic plague that had so devastated its population and the corresponding ability to raise an army that, quote, its demise as a great power in the ancient southeast was already a foregone conclusion. The buildings were still there, though. The main town consisted of 500 houses, which the Inca described as large and of better materials than any they had seen so far. He describes a temple more than 100 paces long and 40 wide, with ornate decorations, and just inside, Twelve giant figures carved from wood, six on a side, with each face carved in a fierce and bold posture. Poking around in the temple, Soto and Ranhel found iron axes from the Bay of Biscay, Castilian axes for cutting wood, and beads that the Spanish explorers used to trade with the Indians. These artifacts no doubt came from Lucas Vasquez de Ayon's failed colony, at San Miguel de Gualdape, which the Indians had described on the coast roughly 90 miles away. Longstanding listeners will remember we discussed that dubious expedition in episode 11. Two things should be said about this. First, it was almost certainly the intention of the King of Spain that Soto establish a colony on the Atlantic coast roughly where Aeon failed, building one of the enumerated stone fortresses. This would have been the perfect place to interdict French pirates. Soto did not do this, however, for after a short stay with a Kovatacheki, he turned his army inland again. Second, it stands to reason that Aeon's colonists may well have spread an eastern hemisphere disease to vulnerable Indians who brought it down a chain of infection into the heart of South Carolina and destroyed the Queen's society. Regardless, in 1566, when the Spanish would next explore this region, Kofetacheki was almost entirely gone, and the vast fields overgrown, and the handsome and gracious queen and her family disappeared from leadership of those few Indians who remained. Now more than a year into the Entrada, Soto's men were getting restive. The territory of the Kofetacheki seemed fertile and an ideal place to settle a colony, with its cleared but underutilized fields and apparently, friendly enough, Indians. However, Soto had not found his great empire, so it was on to North Carolina and eastern Tennessee. In Tennessee and south into northern Alabama, Soto encountered another high Mississippian society called the Coosa. 
a prosperous and militarily important tribal group in the region. The encounter is interesting enough for its description of the Kusa, both in and of itself and because these first European observations of the Kusa were a baseline against which we can compare subsequent accounts. Repeating now an old story, later European visitors would see only shadows, the vibrant Kusa having died away in the decades after Soto's visit. Beyond that summary, though, I'll leave it in your pile of further reading and move on to Alabama, where Soto's Entrada would meet its greatest military challenge. Here I'll go back to Duncan, quote, As Soto headed south, King Tuscaloosa of the Atahatchee weighed his options about what to do with these powerful, deadly strangers moving toward him with the inevitability of a tornado gathering to vent its fury on a hot Alabama afternoon. Yet Tuscaloosa probably knew more in advance about the strangers than most Mississippian rulers, because he may have already met a European, a Greek named Don Teodoro. Thirteen years earlier, Teodoro had become a castaway on the coast to the south during the desperate voyage of Panfilo de Nervais from Florida across the Gulf of Mexico. Cabeza de Vaca explains how he had disappeared when Nervais's tawdry fleet sent him to fetch water in the vicinity of Mobile Bay. Nothing was known about his fate until the Indians showed Soto a small dagger that belonged to the Greek, who had apparently lived for a period of time in the Atahachi town of Piachi. Whether or not Tascalusa met Don Teodoro is unknown, but it seems likely the king would have at least received a detailed report about him and the Spaniards he came with. This is the last footprint of the Narvaez expedition, at least that we know of. Attentive listeners will remember that Teodoro was not sent to fetch water per se, insofar as there were more than 200 Spaniards on those rafts. Rather, the Spanish and the coastal Indians swapped hostages, the Spanish selecting a black slave and the Greek guy as their representatives. The hostages were to provide security for negotiations over food and water for the survivors on the rafts, but the encounter devolved into fighting and the hostages were never repatriated. Cabeza de Vaca did not say what happened to the Indians taken in exchange. And we do not know whether the black slave lived for a time or died in the moment. If Don Teodoro indeed survived for a while and even indirectly provided useful information to Tascaloosa, he would complete a circle that would delight anyone who loves the ironic as much as I do. Tascaloosa sat at the top of an Indian dynasty that was still expansionist and militarily vigorous. The aforementioned Kusa were falling into his geopolitical sphere, and relatively recent archaeological evidence indicates that the Atahachi had only ruled southern Alabama for two or three generations. They built high pyramidical earthen mounds, and Soto first encountered Tascaloosa sitting on what was in effect a throne high up on the side of one of them. Tuscaloosa himself was, according to all the chroniclers, an enormous man. When Soto brought horses up to give Tuscaloosa a ride, that would have been quite a novelty even for a king of Tuscaloosa's wealth, none of the proper saddle horses were big enough to support him. And Soto's men had to round up a big draft horse ordinarily used for hauling baggage. Tuscaloosa appeared to want good relations with the Spanish. 
He sent his son as ambassador to Soto, and on October 10, 1540, welcomed Soto into his town, where he entertained Soto with a proverbial wine, women, and song. The wine, of course, being figurative for some sort of fermented Indian brew. This was all, however, a show. Tuscaloosa had set in motion preparations for a daring surprise attack by thousands of warriors who owed him fealty at a town called Mabila. We do not even today know the exact location of Mabila, but it was probably somewhere between Selma and Mobile. We do not know how or why Tuscaloosa organized the attack, but Duncan argues that the king's tactics suggest that he knew something of his adversary and how the Spaniards would behave. For instance, Tuscaloosa seemed to know that it was Soto's style to enter a new city first with just a few men, as if to prove his boldness. He also seemed to realize that the Spaniards had grown careless in the months since they fought their last battle against the Appalachee, and that they could probably be lulled into a false security. Hence, the wine, women, and song. In the event, Soto behaved exactly as Tascaloosa would have predicted if he, in fact, had advanced knowledge of the Entrada. Quoting Duncan, When the festivities were over, Soto confronted the Atahachi king with his usual demands to give us Indians to carry the burdens and, of course, women. True to form, Tascaloosa responded that he was not accustomed to serving anyone rather that all served him. To which Soto responded that night by ordering the king detained and put under guard in the palace the Atahachi had provided for the governor. Tascaloosa, says Ranhal, scoffed at such a decision, being lord, to give him so suddenly a restraint or impediment to his liberty. Like Elvis, Biedma suggests that it was this arrest that triggered Tascaloosa's resolve to launch the attack at Mabila and the ruin that afterward he inflicted on us. Indeed, it was on the very next day that Tascaloosa began the first part of his strategy by handing over 400 men to serve as porters, while putting off Soto about supplying females and food, which he insisted he would provide at one of his other cities called Mabila. There, said the king, brilliantly playing his deception, he would provide the Spaniards with 100 women, and those which they most desired, close quote. This being a family podcast, I'll rely on the parents to explain the genius in Tascaloosa's deception to any kids who happen to be listening along. Tascaloosa's trap was almost uncovered. During the week or so hike to Mabila and those 100 most desirable women promised to the Spanish, some local Indians ambushed and killed two Spaniards, one of which was a member of Soto's personal guard. This naturally angered Soto, who threatened to burn Tuscaloosa alive unless he produced the Indians who killed his men. Tuscaloosa haughtily replied that he would turn over those Indians at Mabila. This all seemed too convenient to some of Soto's men, who were beginning to smell a rat. They persuaded Soto to send scouts to see what was up along the road ahead, Duncan again. On October 16th, one of the scouts rode back and breathlessly informed the governor that the Indians up ahead were evilly disposed because when he was there, many men and many arms had entered the town. 
They also were working frantically at Mabila to reinforce the palisades around the city and demolishing houses and clearing out the foliage around the walls as if preparing for battle. This news led to a heated meeting with Soto's alarmed senior officers. They advised him not to enter Mabila. Luis de Moscoso, for one, told the governor it would be well to camp in the open since the Indians were so disposed, particularly since the army at this point was not marching in disciplined ranks, but was spread out among the several villages and farmsteads in the area, pillaging and scattering themselves. Soto listened to their warnings, but as usual decided he knew best, behaving with the same reckless certitude that had gotten him in trouble before. He brushed off Moscusa and the others, telling him he was tired of camping in the open and preferred to sleep in the house Tascaloosa had promised him inside the city. He also told his men that he did not want to appear weak in front of the king and his warriors. Close quote. On the morning of October 18, 1540, riding with, in Duncan's words, the usual Renaissance pomp and majesty, Soto led his vanguard to the gates of the walled town of Mabila. A local chief greeted him with many Indians singing and playing music and gave the governor gifts of blankets and furs. Soto and his guard dismounted and followed Tascaloosa and the local chief into the city, where three or four hundred Atahachi, painted and dressed to the nines, greeted them. Then the party began with more fermented beverages and, quote, marvelously beautiful women whose exotic dancing, exotic seems at least literally true and perhaps also figuratively, was meant to divert the attention of the visiting Spanish. It worked. At some point, Tascaloosa slipped away to a hut where his military leaders were holding what the Inca described as a council of war. The question was to hold off the attack until the summoned warriors arrived or to spring the trap shorthanded. Tascaloosa, no doubt sick of Soto and the attendant indignity, ordered his men to attack immediately. History does not record whether Tascaloosa shouted, Roll Tide, but I like to think he would have if he'd known it were a thing. Soto had eventually noticed Tascaloosa's absence, and he called for the chief to come out of the house. Tascaloosa refused and told Soto that if he wished to go in peace, he should leave immediately. The Spanish looked around and suddenly realized that many of the houses were not empty as assumed, but filled with warriors. Soto grabbed his helmet, and a Spaniard named Galagas drew first blood by hacking off the arm of a nearby Indian. Soto and his vanguard were suddenly under attack, cut off from the rest of the Spanish army, quote, sprawled out across several miles along the Alabama River. Quoting Duncan now, During the first confusing minutes of the assault, Five Spaniards of Soto's guard were struck down by arrows and a crush of well-aimed blows from maces. The others survived this initial wave of attackers, though some were wounded. Soto, too, was hit with some 20 arrows, though none penetrated his heavy quilted armor as he hacked away with his sword. A couple of Spaniards were able to get on their horses, and Soto's secretary, Rangel, reared his up which brushed back the charging Indians just enough to let Soto climb on another horse. Now back to Duncan. Soto could have escaped the city through a nearby gate, but this was not his way. Instead, he turned abruptly back into the fray, 
blasting into the midst of the Indians who cleared a path for the bloody Galagos and his bodyguards using the old conquista tactic he was famous for, the sudden thrust forward into the midst of unarmored Indians. Miraculously, Soto, Gallegos, and most of the remaining guards escaped Mabila alive, battling their way to the gate, where they ran out in the surrounding field and raised the alarm among the soldiers then arriving on the outskirts of town. However, they were forced to leave behind a priest and some of Soto's servants, who holed up in a house where they tried to defend themselves with a single sword. As the governor and his party retreated into chaos, the Indians made a move that would later prove disastrous for the Spaniards. They invited the army's porters to join them. Having stopped not far from Mabila's walls, these Indians, some of them Atahachi warriors, pressed into service just two days earlier, and some from as far away as Florida, responded eagerly to the defenders' request as they carried their loads inside the gates, helped each other strike off their chains, and grabbed weapons from the stockpiles in the city. They also rifled through the Entrada's baggage, grabbing weapons, clothes, and everything from iron pots to leather shoes. As soon as the porters were all inside, Biedma says the Indians closed the gates of the town and began to beat their drums and to raise banners with a great yell, and to open our trunks and bundles and display from the top of the wall all that we had brought. At this point, then, the Indians were inside their fortified town, and Soto was riding around the outside of it to rally his men, looking almost immortal with all the arrows still sticking out of his quilted armor. The Spanish assaulted the town with infantry a couple of times, but the Indians repelled them under a barrage of arrows. Eventually, they brought the cavalry forward, and after a fierce fight, managed to batter down the stout gate and enter the town. During this phase of the battle, according to Garcilaza de Inca, Soto took an arrow to his buttocks when he raised himself off his saddle to throw a lance. Soto supposedly fought for the next four hours posting off his saddle, which is an almost unbelievable measure of his personal strength and skill as a horseman. The house-to-house slog went on for the rest of the afternoon, the Indians resisting ever more desperately. When the men fell, the wives and daughters picked up their weapons and turned on the Spanish with no less skill and ferocity than their husbands, according to the Inca. The Spanish fired some of the houses to smoke out the Indians, and the flames soon spread throughout Mabila. By twilight, it was clear that the Indians had lost the battle for the town and suffered tremendous casualties in defense of their land. The chroniclers estimate that the Indian dead numbered in the thousands in their accounts, but most historians think this was an exaggeration, with modern estimates in the high hundreds. The social damage, however, was severe. The Spaniards had killed or wounded the regional leadership. Tascaloosa's son and heir was found lanced, and the king's aides, generals, and priests were all killed. As for Tascaloosa himself, the Spanish never learned his fate, since the Spanish spent weeks in the area convalescing from their own injuries. It is almost certain that Tascaloosa died in the battle, probably burned beyond recognition in one of the houses in town. And of course, in a society without writing, the loss of elite wisdom, centuries of civilizational know-how, died with the leadership. 
By the time the next Europeans passed through, about 20 years later, the expedition of Tristan de Luna, quote, the only trace of Tascaloosa's kingdom was a few survivors living among the ruins of an Atahachie city. Reduced to a society of primitive agriculturalists quickly devolving into hunter-gatherers, they told the Spaniards that their country had once been great and powerful until strangers looking like them had come and destroyed their crops and cities and killed their people. The former kingdom of the Atahachie proved so barren of food and essentials that Luna's small group of soldiers and colonists nearly died of starvation after their provisions were destroyed in a hurricane. As for the Spanish, the chroniclers reported 40 or so dead, including some of Soto's most practical and senior officers, and more than 200 wounded. The Indians had also killed a dozen of their irreplaceable horses and wounded 70 more. The Spanish would remain in the area for the next month into November 1540, tending to the wounded and burying the dead. And of course, the Spanish had lost almost all their baggage, which had been captured when Tuscaloosa's warriors flipped the Indian porters to their side. That was, in many respects, the highest price the Spanish paid for their notional victory. All in all, Mabila was the worst military disaster of Soto's otherwise impressive career. His arrogance led him and his men right into a trap about which he had had advance warning, and he had exposed his army's baggage train, which is a classic military blunder. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. And there's your bonus special effect. Next time, we really will conclude the story of the now battered Soto Entrada, which will include the discovery of the Mississippi, usual air quotes, etc., with more than the usual number of qualifiers, the first true exploration of northeastern Texas, a journey past the site of New Orleans, not a mile from where I am recording this, and another remarkable story of survival. Thank you again for listening. And if you haven't already, please tell your friends about the History of the Americans podcast. Follow us on Facebook, subscribe by email through the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and send me questions, eruptions of indignation, cranky criticisms, and pats on the back by email to the History of the Americans at gmail.com. <laughs>